to speaking with you this morning. Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 61. Uh, You know that we uh, have just finished, or I guess this is the concluding sermon in an Advent series. Uh, We had the King of Blessing, the King of Peace, the King of Justice. Last week we heard about the Shepherd King, and today we're going to conclude with the Coming King. So for those who are able, please stand. In Isaiah 61, I'll be reading from verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come to you confident that you are the king who has come. You are the king who is coming again. Father, we pray as we come before you this morning that you would open our eyes, uh, that you would give us hearts uh, that are open to your word, that you would teach us. Father, I pray that you would use my words uh, to teach, that anything I say that's not worth being heard, that it wouldn't. And, Father, that the things that would be worth being heard would be augmented by you. Uh, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, the the grace that abounds. Thank you for the ways that you are at work in our world and in our congregation and in our community. And we give you glory and praise for this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, so we all know that Christmas was last Wednesday. Um, many of you maybe are still just enjoying the bliss of Christmas. Uh, to many of us, it seems like ages ago. And at this point, maybe some of you find yourself asking the question, is that it? Is that, is that all? If you're a parent of a young child, uh, you may uh, realize that some of the toys are already broken. Uh, you may have wanted to pull those batteries out of the electronic toys and hidden them somewhere. Uh, Maybe you're the parent of a teen and you just want to smash that PlayStation or toss that cell phone out the window. Um, All the rushing around and preparations and now it just seems like it's all over. You don't have to be a parent to feel this way. Needless to say, for most of us, glittery gifts lose their gleam and the brightness of the season seems to grow dim. Perhaps your Christmas tree is already laid out at the curb. All of your lights and decorations are down. Maybe you feel like the holidays just really didn't live up to the hype. You've not gained much other than a few extra pounds. And despite having felt occasions of being very full over the holidays, the passing of Christmas has left you feeling quite empty. Again, you ask yourself, is that all? Then you wonder, why am I feeling this way? And maybe you feel bad for feeling bad. I suppose that feeling this way is natural. And when I say natural, I mean it in both the good 
and the bad sense. First, let's start with the bad. Natural, as in natural to man. Natural to our sin nature. The natural that we need to reject and turn from. 1 Corinthians 5-7 tells us, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in one sense, we need to reject our natural tendency to be dissatisfied, our grumbling, our complaining, our feelings of just non-insatisfaction. We need to treat that as that which has passed away. We need to repent of that, right? But at the same time, I think this verse speaks to a good bit of natural when it says that the new has come. It is good natural for us to feel a sense of wanting after Christmas, because we are longing, truly longing, for the new to come in all of its fullness. The season of Advent has ended officially in the church calendar, but Advent is not only a season of waiting and watching for the birth of Christ. There are two Advents, you know this, two comings. The first, yes, happened 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem, a manger, an animal's feeding trough surrounded by mangy animals and mangy shepherds who responded to the angel's call. The second advent is yet to come and will be a spectacle for all to see. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 describes it this way, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Ultimately, that is the advent that we're all longing for. So yes, in many ways, a continued longing and lack of satisfaction is natural in a good sense. But before we go there too quickly, we need to pause and ponder and continue to reflect on the truths of Christmas. We need to appreciate that we truly have something to celebrate. The King has come. Let's not so quickly forget that the King has come. Our passage in Isaiah points us to an anointed one. One on whom the Spirit of God rests. Here we have a weighty introduction to one who speaks with absolute authority. This was good news for the people who first heard this prophecy, and it's good news for us today. You may know the prophet Isaiah was writing in Judah during the time period of the Assyrian threat to the northern kingdom, and ultimately the conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. The book of Isaiah details Israel's sin and unfaithfulness and God's judgment, and it ultimately predicts Judah's future fall to Babylon. But these verses here in chapter 61 are among many parts of Isaiah that point to a promised Messiah. They point to the coming of the Lord's salvation. They point to the future glory of Israel and the redemption of God's people. So let's stop and pause and dwell a little bit on the good news that the king has come. I'm sure many of you know that this passage in Isaiah is seen again somewhere in the New Testament. It's seen in Luke chapter 4. The context is that Jesus has resisted the temptations of the devil. He has begun his earthly ministry in Galilee and in the surrounding areas. He's teaching in the synagogues, and it tells us in Luke 4.15, he's being glorified by all. Rightfully so, he's being glorified by all. I want to read a little bit from Luke 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. If this were a movie, this would be the place where the orchestral music is rising to its crescendo, right? And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Listen to that. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I imagine silence. Intense, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping silence. This was the moment, the ultimate mic drop. Perfect truth and perfect humility. Jesus reveals himself in extreme glory and sits down and says, that's me. The king has come. Let's back up a little bit. Why do we need a king? In our tradition, we often refer to Jesus as executing three offices. The offices of prophet, of priest, and of king. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this in question 26. How doth Christ, I like that, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Listen to this answer. It's really beautiful. Christ executeth the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. I love the way the children's first catechism puts it. We use that in Sunday school with the littlest of children. The question simply, how is Christ your king? And the answer, Christ rules over me, the world and Satan, and he defends me. The children's catechism adds another question for the benefit of the children. I think it's a question that we can all benefit from. Why do you need Christ as your king? The answer, listen to this, because I am weak and helpless. Because I am weak and helpless. Why do we need a king? Because despite what we like to think about ourselves and our self-sufficiency, there are things that we simply cannot do on our own. We need to see ourselves for what we truly are. People who are blind. People who are imprisoned, like the gospel says. Incapable of saving ourselves. We need a king. We're like a drowning man struggling against the current. Gasping for breath while we're constantly gulping in more water. Tiring and desperate and hopeless and terrified. We're like the man trapped in quicksand, slowly and steadily sinking into the miry clay, further and further, hopeless and helpless. We need someone to save us. We need a king. We need someone to save us. Listen to the good news. Listen to the good news that we've been proclaiming this entire season. The angel told Joseph in Matthew 1 to name him Jesus. Why Jesus? for he will save his people from their sins. This is the king, the angel heralded, saying, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Later in the temple, Simeon testified, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is the king of whom Isaiah wrote, I will make you as a light for the nations. My salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And 30 some years later, 
this king would stand before Pilate, who asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And this king, this all-glorious king, was crowned with a crown of thorns. Hail, king of the Jews, said the soldiers. And they struck his head and spit on him, knelt down in feigned homage, and led him out to crucify him. And this is the king who rose from the dead on the third day. As we read in Philippians, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So why do we need a king? We need a king because we are weak and helpless to save ourselves. We can't take away our sin. But the suffering king can and did. This is something to celebrate. Through the miracle of the incarnation, through his perfect life, his beautiful earthly ministry, his death and his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death and Satan. He ushered in his kingdom and he rules over us with both justice and mercy. The king has come. Don't let Christmas pass you by without responding in faith to the coming King. If we turn a bit more closely to the passage from Isaiah and Jesus' parallel proclamation in Luke, we see a beautiful series of outcomes at the appearance of this Messiah King. These beautiful verses can be applied to both the literal and the figurative, to the people of Isaiah's day and to us, and ultimately to our future glory. In verse 1, the Anointed One, Jesus, who has come to bring good news to the poor, He says, I've come to bring good news, to proclaim it to the poor. The poor are the physically poor, the least among us, the downtrodden, the persecuted, the oppressed. They're also the poor in spirit, as we read in Matthew 5. Those who Jesus calls blessed and to whom he promises the kingdom. The poor are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Those who have nothing, not a cent, to offer to their own spiritual account. There's no one righteous, not even one, we read in Romans. But the good news of the king is seen in 2 Corinthians 8-9. The poor rejoice, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus also binds up or heals the brokenhearted, those who were broken by their sin and in need of his healing. When John Calvin talks about this anointed one and the preaching of good news, he says the preaching of the word is not an empty sound, but a powerful medicine. Jesus proclaims liberty for the captives, for those who are held captive by sin and Satan, locked up and bound by chains. We are imprisoned and helpless. Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And later he says, But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In verse 2 of this passage, Isaiah tells us that the Anointed One proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. This may may be referring to the year of Jubilee that we read about in Leviticus 25. The 50th year where debts are canceled, where captives are set free. It's a time of restoration. But we can understand it simply put as an era of new blessing. 
And in a very real way, we are living and breathing and acting in this era, this year of the Lord's favor, because the King has come. The Apostle Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And this is just a foretaste of what awaits us in future glory. Amazingly, God is already pouring out many of the blessings of the age to come. We read in verse 3 that the king comes to bring comfort to those who mourn. Here we see a series of metaphors of something broken being turned into something completely new. This is nothing short of a full-fledged transformation, a complete makeover. Here we have a picture of traditional Hebrew mourning, covering one's head with ashes as a sign of self-abhorrence and humiliation. Covering yourself with sackcloth, which is a black, coarse cloth made from goat's hair, is a sign of mourning for personal or national disaster. But the comforting king changes all of that. Ashes are replaced by a beautiful headdress. Mourning replaced by the joyful anointing of oil. And a faint spirit replaced by a garment of praise. This picture is beautiful, it's transformative, and it is complete. All of this is evidence of the kingdom, the glorious rule and reign of the king who has come and who has turned the world on its head. This is true and this is reason to celebrate. We don't always see it so clearly, do we? Fortunately, we don't always experience the newness and the fullness of the kingdom here and now. You may have heard the expression, the now and the not yet, when referring to the kingdom. This is the reality that though the kingdom of Christ is among us in a very real sense, we continue to struggle with sin, We continue to mourn. We experience pain and loss and brokenheartedness. The kingdom of God is present now, but there are some realities that we do not yet experience in fullness. Remember that beautiful jaw-dropping silence when Jesus proclaimed himself the one who was fulfilling the scripture from Isaiah? Just a few verses later, at the end of chapter 4, if you keep reading, Luke ends with the crowd driving Jesus out of town and taking him to the top of a hill so that they could throw him down a cliff. How's that for not experiencing the fullness of the kingdom? Of course, we know that Jesus walked away. Yes, the king has come, but each of us longs for that second advent. Believers all over the world, believers in our community, and certainly believers in this very congregation long for healing for those in pain, Comfort for the mourning, reconciliation for broken relationships, hope for the depressed, freedom for the prisoner, and sight for the blind. All of us feel this tension. Creation itself longs for perfection. In Romans 8, we read, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. There's another way of expressing the now and the not yet that I really like. 
I heard it expressed as the already and the still more. I love the positive spin. The already and the still more. Something to enjoy and experience now with more to look forward to. Again from Romans, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Brothers and sisters, are you waiting with hope and with patience, and with confidence. The promise came. It came in Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And we see it in its glorious fulfillment at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's what we await as we wait on the King who will come again. And as we wait, we already see the results of God's good work. It tells us in verse 3 and 4 that we might be called oaks of righteousness who would build and raise up and repair. Oaks of righteousness. The image is grand. It's fruitful, immovable, firm, steady, and secure. Do you see yourselves as oaks of righteousness? That describes Christ's redeemed kingdom people both now and into eternity. And the calling is for God's kingdom, kingdom people to do God's kingdom work. The image in verse 4 starts out with one of complete and utter destruction. Ancient ruins, ruined cities, former devastation, the devastation of many generations. The bottom line here is that ancient ruins, long since abandoned, have no hope of being rebuilt. No one's interested. No one's able. Think about it. Even famous ruins that we know of that have been somewhat restored in our time still fall far short of their former grandeur. Mayan ruins in Mexico, the Roman Colosseum, Machu Picchu in Peru, the city of Pompeii, the ancient Egyptian pyramids. While these ruins inspire awe in the imagination of tourists, in reality, they're just empty shells devoid of the life and vigor that existed there before. But as God's people, as oaks of righteousness, we are called to raise up, to restore, and to rebuild. And He empowers us to do just that. Just as we have been made new creations, we are to strive for restoration here and now. Even as we look for His second coming, when He will ultimately make all things new. We're called to raise up, to restore, to rebuild in our families, in our places of work, 
our schools, our church, and our community. You can think about the ways that you're doing that or that you can be doing that. I think we seek to model that here at Tabernacle, and I think we do it really well. We raise up and restore and rebuild in our home groups where relationships are built and where we worship together. We do it through the Thanksgiving food drive where we seek to bless the hungry in our community. We do it through our care for orphans and the way that we champion life and adoption. We do it through Tab's family prayer come out the week after next where we lift up the needs of others trusting in a caring and powerful advocate who hears our prayers. We raise up and restore and rebuild by supporting the McCalls and other missionaries who carry the Gospels to faraway nations. We do this by working in the nursery, by volunteering at Children's Church, by teaching Sunday school. Also, the great truths of our faith will be passed to our children, equipping them to love Jesus and to live well in an ever-changing culture. We raise up and restore and rebuild through serving the many ministries of this church and in a myriad of ways that all of us care for the community. We do this simply in the ways that we choose to forgive rather than cling to bitterness. When we seek peace in our marriages. When we look to one another's needs before our own. We do this every week when we gather here together to be reoriented to the truth of the gospel, to prepare ourselves to face a watching world on Monday morning. And may we do all of these things to the glory of God. So as we celebrate the King who has come, as we look forward to His promised return, our posture is one of waiting and working and worshiping. And we can confidently end with the closing verses of the New Testament from Revelation 22, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we do thank You that You have come. We praise You as the coming King. We look forward to Your return. We cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. Knowing, though, that You have us here in the here and now, to work, to rebuild, to restore. Father, thank You for the good work that You have done in our lives. Thank You for the wonderful things that You're doing in and among us in this congregation. Lord, help send us to the community. Send us to a watching world. Bless us and encourage us even as we go today. Fill our hearts with joy. Help us to remember the truths of this beautiful Christmas season and look forward with hope and with confidence to that second coming, to the ultimate advent uh, that we long for. And we pray all this in the good and glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.